we are going to be in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. And as you remember, a couple weeks ago, uh, before Dave Wilkinson came, we rounded the corner from the Sermon on the Mount into Matthew chapter 8. And uh, as I said before, we're going to change pace a little bit. And uh, we're going to look at a few more verses than we have been. Um, uh, I was struggling a little bit this week because for the past five or six months, I've been preaching on like maybe two or three verses at a time. And uh, today we're going to do 17 verses. So hopefully the, the time frame doesn't just multiply into, you know, the same amount per verse. But I don't think it will. And uh, we'll have a good time. It'll, it's be, it'll be good to change pace a little bit and see now Jesus switching from a large section of teaching uh, to a large section of his ministry. And we'll sit, get to see him walking around. And uh, that's kind of the, the, the idea that I was getting as I was studying this week, is that when we see Jesus working, we see God's authority walking on two human feet and interacting with his creation in a very, very special way. Most of us in this room have, have completed some kind of education. Um, we're probably, most of us are probably done with it. Um, Robert Congdon is here this morning, and he's just getting ready to graduate, hopefully, right? Hopefully in a couple weeks here with a master's degree. And we've all completed, whether it's high school or college or whatever. And uh, the age-old question is often asked when you're in schooling of some sort, when am I ever going to use this material, right? And uh, maybe that's asked particularly when we're taking uh, classes like math or science. And uh, did you ever ask that question? Did you ever... Uh, study a subject and wonder, when is this ever going to be applicable to my life? Now, for some people, learning is all the fun, and they don't really care if they ever get to apply it. Um, I'm not necessarily one of those people. I like practical things. Um, if you're more practical in nature, learning things like, you know, Newton's laws and Pythagoras theorem, they really don't get your wheels turning, do they? It's just kind of information that's out there. Now, good teachers, maybe great teachers, always find a way for the information to come to life. In other words, they always find a way for it to enter in and for you to see, yes, this is, this is applicable, or it's at least important. Now, I'm not a math person. It was, it was my least proficient subject in, in school, in high school. Um, my wife will tell you that when it comes to numbers, I'm still out of my league a lot of the times. And she has to do a lot of that work for us, which is good, because she is a numbers person. And uh, I often joke that uh, I focus my studies in scripture and theology and pastoral ministry because I was hoping I wouldn't have to study math in college. But lo and behold, when I got to college, we still had to take math classes. And uh, those actually were my worst classes. Um, it still haunts me to this day, but beyond all that. Sometimes even math comes to life. Like that big term I used, I had to look it up again, Pythagoras theorem. I had to look up the right spelling. Does anybody remember learning that in algebra? It's a squared plus b squared equals c squared, and that may be meaningless to you even now. And uh, well, wouldn't you know that as a carpenter, I use that calculation all the time, all the time. And we use it to, to square up buildings and to square up rooms and to square up cabinets to make sure that the diagonal measurement tells us that the two sides are parallel and at 90 degrees. And uh, a lot of times I, I have a calculator that does that for me, but I remember the first time that I didn't have my calculator with me and I had to do that math 
And it took me a while, but I got it. And I remember thinking, well, the light just clicked. Sometimes these things really are important to learn, and they do make a big difference. Now, why am I talking about all that? What does that have to do anything with Matthew 8? Well, having just come off of our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we've received a lot of teaching, haven't we? Um, We've been looking at it for a number of months. And particularly at the end of that sermon, that teaching showed us a lot about who Jesus is, his lordship, his authority, his power. And as we saw at the very end, just two weeks ago, people were amazed when they heard Jesus' words. They were awestricken by his authority. Now, if it had stopped there, if that's all we had about Jesus was Matthew chapter 1 through 7, we would see an amazing person, and Jesus might be what many believe he truly is, which is a good teacher, a great teacher even. But they might see him as just a good teacher, a significant one and a controversial one, but they might see him as just a good teacher. And the Sermon on the Mount might be taken just as a pinnacle of ethical instruction, but nothing more than that. And the teaching is marvelous. It's life-giving, as we've seen. But we haven't seen all of Jesus yet, who he is and what he does. We've only got a taste so far. Now, interestingly, I I would say that the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount at this point is sort of the pinnacle of Israel's history as far as revelation, because for the first time, God himself has come to instruct on the meaning of his law, the depth of the blessing available, and the true scope and source of righteousness. But it doesn't end with the teaching. Jesus' authority doesn't stop with his teaching, because as we'll read today, as he came down off that mountain, he's immediately met by people. People who are in need, people who need more than just the words of the teaching, more than just knowledge, they need Jesus' authority in a much different way. Now, one thing to know about Matthew is he doesn't always arrange these stories in chronological order. So you might read through Mark or Luke and find the same miracles in different order. And Matthew sort of arranges them for a purpose, and we'll see that at the end of the sermon today, and we'll also see it over the next few weeks, because we're going to look at these healings and miracles, and he has a few of them in in chapters 8 and 9 that kind of come in triplets, or in pairs of three, groups of three, and all of them sort of have a theme behind them. But nevertheless, in these miracles, Jesus' authority comes really together with his care, and his authority and his care enter into the darkness into, as we would say, the sin and the curse and the effects of the fall. He enters into human brokenness and uncleanness. Those two things will be important in this chapter in a way that would have shocked and even repulsed many of the people of that day, specifically the Jewish people. By these things, Jesus' ministry is affirmed, but it's also broadened and it's attested to by the miracles. And they not only tell us about his authority and his power, but they also tell us what he is like. 
In these accounts, we see the authority and the power of God walking around, as I said, on two legs. Now, for a number of years, there was a really popular little phrase, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? There was on bracelets and shirts and hats. And I remember when I was a kid, it was popular to wear those things. And uh, maybe you or some of your children had those. And that's an intriguing question, right? What would Jesus do? When you come to a situation in life, an interaction, a relationship, you ask that question, what would Jesus do? And I think the big idea of that is that we are to be Christ-like, and that's, that's a good goal. But when we look at Jesus in this passage today, maybe a bigger question that we could ask is, what would God do in these situations? And we see that when we look at this and ask that question, we get the answer. Because as we know, when we look at Jesus, we are looking in the face of God who has come as a man. What would God do if a leprous man approached him on the street? What would God do if if a, a conquering Roman military official begged him to help his servant? What would God do if a woman was sick on her bed and unable to rise up? What would God do with the sin and the curse and the brokenness and uncleanness that has followed it, the impurity of human life? Well, Jesus is God, and in these accounts, we see what he would do. We see that he would enter into it, touch it even, look it square in the face, and with his power and authority, he would deliver it. That's our big idea for this morning. Regardless of condition, background, or status, Jesus' authority and care can enter in and heal what is broken and unclean. We'll see a little bit about what that means as we look through this passage. We're gonna look in this passage at three stories. That'll be the bulk of it. And at the end, we'll look at one purpose. Three stories with one purpose. And I'm just gonna read these one at a time to kind of keep us uh, in a little bit of a, a narrower focus as we go through. But let's pray that the Lord would bless our study this morning as we jump into Matthew chapter eight. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation that has come through Jesus Christ, your son, God in human human flesh. Thank you for what we can glean from this today and what we know through the rest of the scripture as well about who you are and what you do. May you bless us and may we follow you because of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's start in in, uh, Matthew 8, beginning in verse number one. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd, or sorry, uh, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Verse one tells us that when Jesus came down from the mountain, after his sermon, great crowds began to follow him. And we will see later in Matthew that these crowds were not necessarily disciples in the sense of, of uh, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and all those guys. They were following him, and they were interested, 
And that's really no surprise because before we started into the Sermon on the Mount, and I showed the scripture a minute ago prematurely, we read this from Matthew 4. It says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And you skip down a little bit. It says, great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond Jordan. That was a bit of a, a summary, sort of a preemptive summary that Matthew gave. And he told that all of these healings were happening and these miracles and this teaching, and great crowds were following him. So in one sense, we're sort of picking up where we left off before we got into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're seeing now this coming to life in this passage. We're seeing that in those verses, Jesus had great fame as a teacher and a healer. And no doubt the Sermon on the Mount had bolstered that because people's response was astonishment. And so now as he comes down the mountain, so to speak, the crowd is following him and they're watching him. Now we're not sure if all of these healings that we're going to read about today happened on the same day, but the idea is that the crowds are watching. They're taking notice of what he would do. They were amazed at what he said. Now they're going to see what he does. And as Matthew records it, the first test that he gets, so to speak, after coming down the mountain, it would have been one, and it is one, for the history books. And we see first the leprous man, the leprous man. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, we could stop reading after that first phrase in that verse, uh, where it says, Lord, if, or, what, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Now, leprosy is still around today, at least in name. It's not very common, but it happens. And uh, the one that is around today is, is probably one of the versions or forms of leprosy that was around in Jesus' day even then. Um, if not, it would have been very similar. The word for leprosy in the Bible can refer to a number of contagious skin diseases. And most notably, it was a disease that essentially killed the body from the outside in, and in that commonly known disease, the infected person would start with sores or boils, and the infected areas of the skin would, would slowly die. Uh, feeling would be lost, the skin would die, and it would waste away, and because feeling was lost, even parts of their bodies would be rubbed off over time. Now, there were other less deadly forms of skin disease, which were also called leprosy, but they're all kind of lumped in together in Scripture. And with all the forms of leprosy in the Jewish world, the physical ramifications or the, the symptoms of the disease were not the only issue. In Israel, there were some very important laws in place concerning the spread of skin disease. Uh, Leviticus 13 and 14 are two chapters almost entirely filled with procedures that having to do with, with rashes and skin disease and is it contagious, are you clean, unclean? And it sounds like not much fun, but I would encourage you to read those maybe later and it'll give you a little bit more of a sense of what this man was facing as an Israelite with leprosy. Now the highlight of those chapters, or maybe the low light if you were infected, 
is Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46, which say this. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. And there's the picture. A dwelling outside the camp, alone, uh, marked in appearance by unkept hair, tattered clothing, and whenever near enough, in earshot of an individual, he had to cover his mouth, so to speak, and yell, unclean unclean. Now it's thought now that leprosy was spread mostly through saliva and and respiratory sort of droplets, and uh, so the hand over the mouth maybe was to prevent some of that, but either way, this was the picture. A person living alone, or maybe in a camp with other lepers, outside the camp, totally distanced, and having to mark himself and declare his presence everywhere he went. Now, what started as a measure to protect from the spread of this skin infection, as usually happens with human nature, turned into an opportunity for hatred and despising of the infected. Now, we can be a little lighthearted this morning, maybe. Uh, Over the last couple years, we all could probably agree that there has been some animosity surrounding the whole COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Differing opinions, opposing parties, calling the other side uh, unreasonable or irresponsible for opposite reasons. And oftentimes we're speaking past each other, but that's just over the last two years. And there's been some pretty intense conversations and arguments, families, churches even, that have happened because of that. Over two years. Now imagine the man in our story. The laws concerning leprosy had been in place in Israel for over 1,500 years at this point. Leprosy was a a continually present disease. You remember the story of of Naaman being healed by the prophet Elisha where he had to dip in the Jordan River? At that time, it said there were many lepers in the land. There's another story where a city was conquered and a camp of lepers came and nobody was in the city and they they sort of got all the food. They finally had something to eat and they felt bad about it because nobody was there. Leprosy was sort of a normal thing. And what about in Jesus' day? Well, in Luke 17, we read a story of Jesus healing a group of 10 lepers who were all sort of living together. And the idea was that those lepers were sort of in a camp together, but outside of society. This was a common existence, sort of a second-rate existence. To, To add to this, There were rabbis in Jesus' day who who recommended throwing stones at lepers to keep them at a safe distance. Now, when I I got COVID a couple months ago, I remember thinking, man, people are going to think that I'm unclean. You know, they're going to say, you have to stay outside of the camp for two months until you're pronounced healthy. And uh, that's funny, but we have no idea. We have no idea what this situation was like. We have no idea, A, the fear for life on the part of those who weren't infected, because already the life expectancy was short. We also have no idea the feeling of agony and separation on the part of the one who was infected, let alone families 
that were torn apart when a spouse was infected and was pronounced as good as dead. Well, in contrast to a rabbi who would say, throw stones at lepers to keep them away, what does Jesus do? Behold, a leper came and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Instead of stepping back and being angry, Jesus reaches out and touches the man. He touched him. Nobody touches a leper. Don't you know that's contagious? Don't you know the ramifications if you get one of those little spots on your skin? Nobody got close enough even to be at arm's length to a leper. But Jesus touches him. Now notice what the leprous man says. It's important. Firstly, he says in verse 2, Lord. Now at the very least, that was a title of respect, a high title of honor and respect, but seeing the request that was he was about to make, more than likely he was admitting that Jesus was more than just teacher. He says, Lord, and then he says, if you will. Do you notice that? From whatever this leprous man had heard, whatever he had seen, he believed that with Jesus it wasn't a matter of ability or authority. It was a matter of will. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This is how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount. He said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's kind of what the leper was saying. I know you can, will you? By even approaching Jesus, this leper showed boldness, but faith. Faith that he wouldn't be stoned by someone in the crowd for approaching. And in speaking these words, he wasn't presumptuous. He didn't say, you must make me clean. He said, I know you can. And if you will, I will be clean. He had great faith. And what did Jesus do? He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And then notice, immediately, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, there was a process. There were some lepers, uh, those with the maybe less severe forms of the disease, who were recovered over time. And there was a process for them to be examined by the priest and declared clean after a number of days. And interestingly, even though this man was immediately cleansed, Jesus told him, don't say anything to anybody, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. This goes right back to Leviticus 13 and 14. That's why I told you that you should read it because you'll see that there were provisions for a leper who was formerly ceremonially unclean to come to the priest and be declared clean. There was a time of, of, of close watching to make sure no other skin disease formed, and then they had to offer a sacrifice 
and they could either offer an expensive sacrifice or, in the case of most lepers who had no income, they could offer a cheap sacrifice like a dove. And Jesus said, go do this. You're really clean. So go do what Moses commanded so you can be brought back into society. But more importantly, he said, for a proof to them. A proof to them. I can imagine uh, that conversation when the leper went to the priest. Now, Mark's account uh, tells us that the leper didn't immediately obey because he couldn't hold it in. He went out and he told everybody, I've been made clean. But I imagine that he probably eventually went to the priest, offered the sacrifice, and I can, I can only imagine the conversation. How long were you a leper? And you just suddenly became clean. How? You were healed? By who? Jesus of Nazareth? And the healing would have done its second job at that point, not only to make the leper clean, but to be a proof to be a sign. Now we see in this healing not just compassion. All these healings will display Jesus' compassion, but we also see, uh, I couldn't think of any better way to describe it except fearless mercy. Jesus was not afraid to get right into the thick of it to show mercy. Like our theme for this year, right? Unwavering love, unending mercy, undying faithfulness. That's who Jesus is. He has taught us that blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now he's showing that kind of fearless mercy. But that's just one healing. Let's go to the second one. And secondly, we read about the lame servant. And we'll pick it up in verse number five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Again, there's a parallel to this account in Luke's gospel as well. In that account, it says that there were representatives that came for this centurion. And uh, now we've, we've already broached uh, social kind of uncleanness with the leper. Well, the Roman centurion would have been another form of, of sort of social taboo. Because think of it, Israel has been reduced to a puppet kingdom by the Roman government. And Roman soldiers were not exactly on everybody's top five list of you know, house guests and friends. So maybe he did send a representative to Jesus out of respect. And it also would show the kind of authority that this man had. He said, I'm I'm a man under authority, and I have people under me, and I can tell them to do this. This all kind of works together. As a Gentile, this man was not clean as touching the law of Moses, and talk about the stigma of being a Roman in a kingdom which was conquered by Rome. 
Well, he obviously had some amount of faith in Jesus, and he also showed a great deal of compassion uh, for this servant. And it was a servant. Some people think it might have been a son. It could have been either one. But either way, he showed his compassion and faith by going to Jesus and asking for his healing. This young man, this young person was paralyzed, helpless. Now, Jesus' response was immediate. He said, I'll, I'll come and heal him. Now, we've, we've already looked at touching the leper. That was a no-no. Well, going into the home of a Gentile was a no-no as well. And Jesus has just offered to say, yep, I'll come over, I'll heal him, no problem. Again, he shows mercy, fearless mercy. This time there was no fear of disease, but there certainly was fear of cross looks from those in society who would say, he's going there? And Jesus would get many of those. Notice what the, the, what the centurion says. He says, I'm not worthy. And uh, he actually uses the same words that John the Baptist used when Jesus came to be baptized and he said, I'm not worthy to loosen your sandals. It's that kind of respect. I'm not worthy for you to enter into my home. He'd been around a while. He knew the traditions. He, he knew the laws, but he also knew the scorning look on people's faces, the hatred, the animosity toward him as a Roman aggressor, so to speak. But in his humility... And in his faith, he appeals to Jesus' authority. Jesus taught with authority, and now he heals with authority. In other words, it's real. It's, again, God's authority walking on two feet. He recognized somehow the relationship of, of authority in Jesus. Now, did he recognize that he was God? I don't know. Maybe not, but he at least recognized the authority. And notice the words that he says. He said, I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I can tell them what to do. So in essence, he's saying, you are a man with authority, and you can tell this, this paralytic disease what to do. You've got authority over this. And he said, you can do it without even coming. You can just say the word. It's amazing. Well, when Jesus heard this, verse number eight, or verse number 10, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel, I have found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Stop there for a minute. What Jesus says after the centurion gives us a little speech, gives us an example it gives us a promise, and it also gives a warning. Real quick. The example is the centurion's faith. Now remember, he's being followed by great crowds, most of which I would assume were Israelites, were Jews. And he said, with the crowd present, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. That's the example. It was the centurion's faith to believe that Jesus could heal with just words, which reminds us of God who created the heaven and earth with just the word. That was the example. What about the promise, though? Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west 
and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This goes back to, to Abraham's covenant in Genesis, and specifically what we read in Genesis 22. Uh, an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this, his, his faithful action to offer uh, his son up freely, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring. And then in verse 18, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. In Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. And what does Jesus say here about this Roman centurion? He said, many like this will have a place at the table. And what was the thing that he had noticed about him? His faith. His faith. That's you and me, folks. I assume for most of us, we're not Jewish by birth. Most of us are not, but we can be sons of Abraham by faith. So an example, a promise, and then a warning. And the warning is this, that not everyone who is a son of Abraham by birth will be in Jesus' kingdom. Because he says in verse number 12 that the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Jesus' day, there were many faithless sons of Abraham, as there are today, who reject their Messiah. And they will not be advantaged on that day because of their heritage. There is a warning in that for all of us too, because as Christians, we cannot be born into faith by physical birth. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, then after this, almost as an aside, Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Almost as an afterthought, Matthew includes, oh yeah, by the way, the servant was healed. And again, the miracle has done its jobs. It helped the servant. It was a miracle. It was an act of compassion. But it also served to teach. Coupled with this man's faith, which serves as an example to us even still. Okay, third miracle, verse 14 and 15. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, I have to be careful here, because when you read this passage, uh, the immature person that I am at heart sees a leper, an outcast of society, and a mother-in-law grouped together. And I don't think there's a connection there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, Lord. <laughs> oh, I'm very sorry for that, but I couldn't help myself. Now, in all seriousness, though, there may be some connection, not, not because it's a mother-in-law, but because as a woman, there were some very serious social disadvantages in that day, um, often they were seen as second-rate citizens, even if just culturally, and we'll see all throughout Jesus' ministry that, that he gives 
a great amount of attention, much more than any other teacher in that day, uh, to the, the value of women, to the equality of them in that sense. And he has a higher view of women than any of his contemporaries did. But in this case, I don't think that's the image, and maybe it's there to an extent, but what I saw as I read through this is that up until this point, Jesus had healed strangers, he had healed people he didn't know, he had healed outcasts in society, people who were hated, people who were not welcome. But here, he heals a relative, a near relative of one of his own followers. Think of, of Peter in this moment. He's seen Jesus' healing. He's experienced his authority in teaching. He's seen his power. But now Jesus comes into his home, his house, and with a miraculous healing touch, heals his own mother-in-law who had been sick. Who knows how long? A fever during those days was pretty serious. Could have been deadly. Oftentimes fevers led to paralysis. Maybe that's what ended up with the centurion's servant. Maybe that's how he got there. Regardless, though, for Peter, if it wasn't real up until this point, now it was. This time, the power and authority came to bear on his own household. His own wife's mother was sick and possibly dying. Now she's miraculously risen and goes immediately to serving. Now, there are a couple applications there. And the first and large one is, those of you who have been here over the last months and year, and for some of you, years and years and years, you've seen the work of Jesus in the scripture, you've seen lives changed, you've seen this happen, but is it real in your life? Do you realize that he is a real person? The God-man who came to this earth who displayed the power, authority, and righteousness of God and who died for your sin and mine. Jesus is real. I will proclaim that unabashedly till the day I die. But the, the crux of it, is it real for you? Have you come to faith like that centurion, like that leper? And secondly, if Jesus is real to you, uh, what are you doing since he's saved you? Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are saved unto good works that God has prepared for us. Like Peter's mother-in-law who immediately got up and started serving in the household and the implication is probably that she was serving Jesus. Are you serving the one who saved you, who has died for you, who has healed you of your uncleanness? So we see three stories, again, with one purpose. Again, Matthew is sort of a master of grouping stories together to make a big point, and we'll see that many times in his gospel record. And uh, often the big point has to do with fulfillment. That's, that's one of the major themes of Matthew. We saw that way back a year ago in our introduction to Matthew, and we see it here again. That evening, it says in verse 16, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick 
And this was to fulfill, there it is, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now it says that evening, and that's important because in a parallel account, we read that this was happening on a Sabbath day, at least this portion. So people were literally waiting until evening when the Sabbath was over and they could take their sick ones and the, those oppressed with demons to Jesus by night. And then the miracles just flowed from Jesus. That's how it reads, as if it were effortless. He, he cast out the spirits with the word and he healed all who were sick. Now, I believe God still does healings in certain ways at certain times, but nothing has ever happened since Jesus was on this earth like this, and it happened over and over again. This was not just a man with God behind him. This was God walking on two legs. There's never been a display like this, and all of it was done, Matthew tells us, to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Matt read from this passage in our worship service, and I want to read a little bit again from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty out of appearance that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hit their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the part that Matthew was quoting from there. It's a little bit different translation, but that's what he was referring to. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, in this case, the healing was physical. But when Matthew referred then back to Isaiah 53, the mind of the Jewish reader who he was writing to would have immediately thought of the implications. If this is the one who fulfills this, then what else is wrapped up in? Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised deliverer, the servant of God and son of God who has come to save his people from their sins. He proved his power and authority and his miracles and his, and his great works, but the rest of Isaiah's prophecy would come to fruition as well as Jesus would quite literally be pierced and bruised and crushed for our iniquities. Think of it. The one who looked the leper in the face, the, the despised leper and reached out and touched him became the one who himself is despised and rejected. That's why I say Jesus displays fearless mercy and that he enters in. He entered into the uncleanness of the leper. He entered in uh, to a conversation with a Roman centurion. He entered in, though, more importantly and more ultimately 
for the very uncleanness when he took our sin upon his own sinless body. This is who Jesus is. Uh, This is what God would do and did do if he were here.